Well, good morning, church. So we had finished our series, The Life of Joseph, and now we're starting a series in the book of Hebrews. And uh, it's this brand new series, and therefore, it's really important for us to review some essential background information relevant to the book. And I know some, some of us are like, oh, background information, that doesn't sound very exciting. Uh, if we fail to do this, we become prone to our own readings of the text that is not in alignment with God's original message. Keeping in mind your author and your audience is really, really important. Uh, that's an important principle of understanding God's message to us, is understanding what his message was to them. So let's talk about the author briefly. Uh, we don't really know who the author is definitively. Some suspect it might be Paul. Uh, I think these arguments are compelling. There might be other tentative authors. I don't think we can really be dogmatic. Uh, I think the writer really is known to God alone. Uh, however, even if we're not sure of the, the human author for certain, nonetheless, Hebrews is inspired, and so we know the divine author is God himself. Moreover, we know that the name of the author isn't really as important as the intent that they had when they were writing. What are the intentions of the writer of Hebrews? Why did he write? What message did God want the recipients to have, and what, what can we learn from that? Well, to, to understand uh, the reason why the author wrote, we need to understand who he's writing to. Now, here's, here's a surprise, right? He's writing to Jewish Christians, hence the name of the book, Hebrews. He's writing to Jewish Christians, perhaps around somewhere between 64 to 69 AD. And uh, this is important to note this time, because during this time, what was happening is there was increased persecution against Christian saints that was taking place. There was Roman persecution, and we know how the Romans treated Christians early on in the early church, don't we? Nero would light early Christians on fire and use them to illuminate the night streets. This letter, uh, this letter excuse me, was written towards the end of uh, Nero's rule. Furthermore, persecution, it wasn't exclusively Roman, uh, given the Jewish background of the recipients, it's also important to note that Ananias was the high priest at that time in, in, in the Jewish uh, temple, and he claimed that Jewish Christians were breaking the law. They were excommunicated. Some were stoned. Some were beaten, and some were even killed. And, and what had happened is that this increased persecution created a temptation for, for Christians of Jewish descent to forsake Christ and return to their old Jewish religion. The temptation was that the old Jewish religion was easier and it wasn't as costly. It is, you see, with this background in mind, we can see what, why the author was writing, what the intent of the author was. And the author's message, friends, was not that persecution was going to go away. The author was not selling some kind of a lie to gain converts. He wasn't saying it was going to be easy. The author's message uh, for the group of persecuted Christians was to hold fast. Hold fast to that which you had received. Hold fast to Christ because Christ is better. The idea of holding fast, it's sprinkled really all throughout the book. We see it in chapter 3, verse 6 and verse 14. But Christ was faithful as son over his house, over his house 
whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence in the boast of our hope firm until the end. Verse 14, we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Onwards, it's, it's in chapter 4 and chapter 6 as well. Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Verse 18 of chapter 6, we who have found refuge in him hold fast to the hope set before us. Chapter 10, we see it come out again. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast from the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. Clearly, there is a theme of holding fast to Christ, holding fast to that which we have received. The author is making this case that what is found in Christ is something substantial, something to place our faith and our hope in amidst adversity. The writer argues that this old model that they're tempted to return to was an inferior model, wasn't as good. They were receiving encouragement from the author to press on, to hold fast, because Jesus is worth it. Because Jesus is better. Christ is better. Actually, he's the best. And, you know, there's much strife for us today as well as modern saints. We deal with a lot of strife, and a lot of times it's related to our belief in Jesus Christ. And we have to understand that Christ is better, that Christ is superior, and hold fast to that truth. Place our hope in that truth. Press on because he's better and he's worth it. That is the simple message in the thrust of this book. Book of Hebrews, hold fast to Christ. So with this understanding and this background information out of the way, let's now read Hebrews chapter 1, which we're going to go over this morning, and see how this argument and this encouragement kicks off. If you're able, let's stand for the reading of God's word. Holy Scripture says this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And the angels, and of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions." And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are your work, are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, 
and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they, all, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Please remain standing as we go before the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word. And Lord, right now we ask that you would exalt yourself, that you would make yourself uh, just shine brightly in our hearts, Lord, that you would glorify Jesus Christ, the Son, uh, in a magnificent way here this morning. Let us leave transformed. Let us leave able to hold fast to you because, Lord, you truly are God. Lord, bless this word, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. When faced with any trouble, a man must have confidence that the cause of his trouble is well worth it. Friends, if Christ is the cause of some trouble in, in your life, some, some earthly trouble that has been brought upon you that you now face, he is worth it. Christ is superior above all else. Do not go back to the old ways. When you do, really, you sell yourself short. And you know, in Hebrews 1, the author opens, and he's really arguing this, and it's a simple truth, but it's a beautiful truth. Here is basically what is implied by the words he is saying about the Son. Really, he's saying, hold fast because Christ is better. Why? Because he is God. Christ is God. A simple message. A very simple message indeed. A sense in which the point seems obvious, the point is not revolutionary, yet, in a sense, it is absolutely revolutionary. And if it's true, it changes everything. It changes our perspective on all of life. It gives us the ability to endure, to push on, to move forward, because all of this is dependent, all of this is dependent on whether or not Jesus is the Son of God. Everything is dependent upon that. In, in, our, in our faith. That is the foundation of our faith. Simple statement, if true, is the most profound and powerful statement of all time. Hebrews 1 is most certainly arguing that Christ is the Son of God, and he does so really in the following two ways. It's all implied in these points. He's arguing that Christ is better because he is better revelation and he's also arguing that Christ is better than the angels themselves. So he's making these two, these, these two points here. Kind of, there's some overlap, but these are the, the thrust of how he's opening up. And he opens up uh, talking really about revelation, which is what we're, we're going to start with as well. Christ is better revelation. And revelation, by the way, is just God revealing himself and interacting with mankind. He is better revelation than that of old. Here's what the author says. He opens up, the writer says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. The author opens up with a description of ways that God speaks. He says, the old way through the prophets, and then he's contrasting it with the new way through the son. Now, I want to be careful here 
Notice the author is not saying that God didn't speak through the prophets. Indeed, he did. He is instead, you know, he's confirming the prophets were indeed inspired. God used them to speak at some point in the past. The Old Testament is inspired. Remember Matthew 5, verse 17, Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. But, but nonetheless, there's a shift here from something old to something new. He is trying to shift their mindset of the old way to the new way that God has spoken, the new way that God has revealed himself. He's saying this is a new era. Verse 2 begins, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. He's saying God is speaking through something else now. He's doing something, something a little different This is a statement of great significance, eschatological significance. The phrase, last days, it doesn't preclude you and I either. There is a finality in this new way that he has spoken. He speaks, and the final message to humanity is Christ. It's the Son. You want to hear God speak? You want revelation of God? Look no further. The Son is it. He is the final message. He speaks in the Son. Christ Jesus is the centerpiece of divine revelation to humanity. He is the ultimate revelation of God. And, and mind you, this is an audience with Jewish origin, Jewish descent. They might have, this is a very powerful statement. You know, they're com- he's comparing them to the prophets, right? The prophets were a big deal in Judaism, A prophet spoke on behalf of God, disclosing divine will to the people. Prophets were a huge deal. Now, he goes on, and he's basically now saying, what is it that could possibly qualify this new way of speaking as superior to even the prophets? And again, here is the simple and profound conclusion, which we have already alluded to, Jesus, the Son of God, is the ultimate revelation of God because he is God. This is evidently what the author is trying to convey here based off of the immense description of Christ that follows. It is safe to say the author wants, to, wants people to associate the Son directly with God himself. And we know this because immediately he describes the uniqueness of the Son compared, juxtaposed to all else. In, in such a way where I believe it is impossible to draw any other conclusion rationally. Christ is better. He is better because he is God. Here is what it says, the description right after this. He now describes him as heir of all. The heir of all. God in these last days has spoken to us in his son. He's describing his son now. Whom he appointed heir of all things. You know, prophets, they spoke on behalf of God, and uh, they sometimes received, you know, substantial blessings. But, but this claim, this is incredible. The Son is anointed the heir of all things, the owner of all things. This is saying the Son, whom God is speaking through, literally owns the entire universe, all of it. And, and moreover, it's not some kind of limited blessing, but a rightful inheritance of all creation to the Son. Colossians has very similar language. Uh, in 116, 
it says all things were created through him. And then sometimes we don't really focus on this part, but it says all things created through him and for him. Everything revolves around the sun and his ownership of it all. The large vastness of spaces is the sun's. It belongs to him. The tiniest quark belongs to him. Things visible and invisible are his. And friends, I can only think of one being that rightfully owns all things. It's not a created lesser being. The only one who truly owns all things is God himself. This is a unique characteristic of God alone. Moreover, recall also the description of the Davidic king in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, in which it states, And I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. This is a description of the Messiah. And the Hebrew audience would have been well aware of this description. This is the author of Hebrews saying, Jesus, the Son, is the Messiah, and the earth is his inheritance. All things are his. And of course, naturally, this leads into a further description, again, another one that only could possibly apply to God, the creation of all things. If you own all things, surely you have created all things. And this is also brought out. It says, uh, God has spoken to us in his Son, through whom also he made the worlds. Again, Colossians affirms this. All things were created through him. Again, picture the vastness and the intricacies of space. I was a uh, I was trying to get one of those videos where it's like way in outer space and it slowly zooms in. I couldn't quite get the video, but I got some pictures for us just to get our mind going. Real pictures, this is from NASA. Uh, here's a real picture of a cluster of stars 20,000 light years away taken from NASA's uh, observatory. Beautiful, absolutely stunning, created by the Lord, created by the sun. Here's another one. This is the Bubble Nebula, 8,000 light years away, also taken from NASA. Then you zoom in a little closer. Picture the most scenic, beautiful thing you have seen, right? The trees, the animals. Some of you have been to probably places that have uh, wonderful views. Picture that view. Right, I put one here that I thought was uh, good. I've, I've never been here, but this is a picture of Ellsworth Creek Preserve in Washington. Beautiful, the sun shining through the trees. Right, think of the most beautiful sight you've seen. And now we zoom in a little more. Picture the smallness of a cell. I couldn't, you know, a real cell, you can only see like it's just those blobs. We don't really, you, I, I have this depiction here to help us visualize the intricacy of what inside of a cell might look like. And you see, all of these things, including you and I, were created by Jesus, by the Son, the being who came to earth. It was made by him. And, and also there are other things beyond the face value considerations. Consider the choice of, of word here. It's not cosmos. It's actually another word which also incorporates the ages. We have a, a God, the Son, who created space and he created time. 
can we wrap our minds around that for, for a moment? All of history, all of the universe created by the sun. You and I are here today for one reason only, because Jesus is creator. Moreover, he created out of nothing. The author of, of Hebrews is presenting the Son as an essential and necessary being for, for creation to take place. We know this is affirmed elsewhere in Scripture as well. If you go to John chapter 1, the description of, of Jesus, the Son, the second person in the Trinity, it says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. You take Jesus out of the equation, and all of this disappears, says the Scripture. Friends, there is only one being that creates like this, and it is not some lesser angelic, you know, created being. It is the Lord himself. He is the uncreated creator, and he is Christ. He is Jesus who came in the flesh. And he goes on, and if you're not sold that, oh, Jesus, you know, the Son is, is equal with the, you know, with the Father, part of this, this Trinity, if you're not sure of that, look at what he says next. He says, and he, that is the Son, is the radiance of his glory in the exact representation of his nature. The Greek phrase here highlights this sharing, this, this sharing of, of the nature of God himself. You know, we're, we're made in the, the image of God, but this, this language, again, is incredible. There is something deeper going on here. There is an exact representation of his nature. You know, some, some people say, oh, oh, these verses aren't really explicitly saying that Jesus is God. However, let's backtrack now. Good interpretation method. Who's the original audience? It's, it's the Jew, Jewish people, Jew, people of Jewish descent. Okay? This original audience isn't representative of an overly skeptical modern man. This statement would have been understood either as blasphemy or else an affirmation that the Son of God is indeed God himself. But certainly nothing in between. Also, think, think about this contrast that was set up in verses 1 and 2. The writers answering the question, how is this new way of God speaking superior to the old way of the prophets? I can't really think of anything. Well, well, here's what I'll say. I'll say the only thing superior to a representative of a person, you know, carrying a message and delivering it would be the person themselves, right? The messenger carrying a word is inferior to the very presence of the person from whom the message came. And friends, Christ is the person. He is the person who came. While God did indeed speak from the prophets, you cannot get any more detail about what, what revelation of, of God and who, who he is and what he's like than God incarnate. He is it. He is the grand finale. And even as I stand here and preach today, there is nothing new I can bring to the table that reveals God in anything, in any deeper way than Christ already. Right? Christ is already the full revelation of who God is. No idea greater, no concept greater than him. Nothing new anyone could ever offer. He is the ultimate revelation, the perfect in the exact representation down to the T. 
Colossians puts it this way. says, the Son is the image of the invisible God. You want to know what God is like, friends? Open your Bible, go to John, go to Matthew, go to Mark, go to Luke, and read about him. He's there. You can encounter the Lord. You can have the full revelation of what he's like. I, I pray that we're motivated to seek him and to know him deeper. Recall Christ's own words, right? Anyone who has seen the Father, or anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? We already have the best possible revelation of God, God incarnate. Such a statement, this is the ultimate revelation, because friends, Jesus is God. Such a statement as made in verse 3 is indicative of no other conclusion, especially for this Jewish audience with a keen eye for blasphemy. The author continues stating qualities, again, that could only possibly apply to God. He goes on, he upholds all things. He upholds all things by his power. Not only did he create all things, he sustains all things. Again, we see similar language in Colossians 1, verse 17. In him, all things hold together. In our text, the verb is active, something he is currently doing right now. Jesus Christ, right now, is upholding this very meeting. Doesn't that blow your mind? <laughs> the created world is, depended, uh, is dependent on Jesus to move forward. You know, some naively have proposed, oh, the world is held together by physical laws of nature. Uh, however, this is honestly very problematic philosophically because really there's no reason the laws of nature should even persist. Uh, there was a philosopher actually in the 18th century, David Hume, who recognized this problem. I don't recommend him, by the way, but he did recognize the problem. Um, it has become known as a problem of induction. He, uh, Hume, from his anti-religious uh, perspective says, why are we justified in believing that the future is going to resemble the past? Strictly speaking, there's no reason that past observation of order should even persist into the future. And this is still a huge problem uh, in philosophy today. Sure, there's a law of nature. I guess the, the question is, why? Why? And I'm here to tell you today, things persist. The physical laws of nature persist. Continuity of objects over time, persons over time, souls, the stars, all of the universe exists because the Lord sustains it all. Because Jesus sustains it all. He is bringing them about, upholding all of creation. The reason you and I can take our very next breath is because of Jesus, literally. And when we recognize that Jesus is this sort of being, oh, we should have plenty motivation to hold fast to him. We should have plenty of motivation to press on, to hold fast. Go ahead, persecute me for Jesus. I'm not afraid. He upholds everything. Every cell in our bodies, the person who is persecuting me is only in existence because Christ is holding him together. Why ought we be afraid of anything? If Jesus is actually this being, we would be fools to forsake him. Take heart, 
He's upholding all things. And here is something else. Christ, the ultimate revelation of God and who he is. Look at what is thrown in here. And it's not by accident. Look at what he says next. He says, he made purification for our sins. Christ is better. Christ is God. Divine revelation. And he made purification for our sins. He is a sacrificial savior. Verse 3, when he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You know, the Jewish Christians would be intimately familiar with purification of sins and what was involved in that. They understood well that the holiness of God demands purification for sins, that God's presence in their life demanded cleansing. This was hammered into them. And moreover, these cleansing ceremonies would need to be done constantly. They would constantly need to be done over and over and over and over again. It was, it was said that the priest's work was never done and that they never sat down. And you see what the author here is saying. He's saying that the Son, the representation of God, did the priestly work and sat down. He dealt with your sin and sat down at the right hand of the Father. The work is done. Why return to an old inferior system? Yes, the Old Testament sacrificial system was, was God's gracious provision for a time, but there is a better priest who has made a final sacrifice for sins. The old sacrifice, they couldn't take away sins. And it, it actually says this later on. He, he really reiterates this point and goes deeper later on in the letter. The old system was a shadow. But you see, tied into this divine description of God is that he purifies sins once and for all and that he loves us, that he makes us clean. This is, this is good news. You see, the author here is saying that the son is, he's also a priest who deals with your sin and he sits at the right hand of the father. Friends, you know, there's a better way to deal with, to deal with our sin. The son the Son, God himself, made purifications for us. Why would we continue onward doing whatever inferior thing we're doing to try to deal with our sin? Let God deal with it. And he has at the cross through Christ, through the Son. You see, if you believe in Jesus, that means his work is superior. His work is final. His work is perfect in every way. The deity of Jesus is the, the basis for the grand, complete work of, of purification. Stop striving, friends. God himself wants to purify you. Purify your sins once and for all. And, and moreover, this, this place he's sitting down, the work is done, this place he's sitting is also very significant. The sitting down is at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is significant. It alludes to Psalm chapter 110, which describes Messiah stating, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And this is touched on a bit later in, in verse 13. So I won't get into too much detail now. I'll save it for then. However, we ought to know that this is sitting at the right hand it really has a twofold significance. One, it is the finality of the purification of sins. And the messianic status of Jesus. Again, it's showing who God is through, through the Son, the ultimate revelation. You see, Christ, the Son, he's superior revelation. It's, it's seen through his ownership. It's 
seen through his creation, his sustaining of all things, his better purification. He is exact representation of God, the best revelation of who God is. Why? Because Jesus, the Son, is God. His ways are infinitely supreme. And you know, I find amongst many people today not necessarily a rampant atheism, but a spiritual interest, spiritualism, you know, an interest, a desire for some kind of deeper revelation. It's wrapped in awful things and often, often warped, incomplete, insufficient. Some have proposed pantheistic models of God, ambiguous, a void of, of the beauty of contrast between creator and creation. Some have proposed Islam with its own problematic, lackluster picture of a vastly less relational God that doesn't make purification. And you know, those who we encounter, our, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our loved ones, maybe even some here in this room, when we seek alternative roots of revelation of God, you sell yourself short. There is a perfect revelation of God, and it is in Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews is encouraging Jewish Christians by letting them know that they are receiving the final and the best revelation of who God is, the Son, the Son. When you seek God, when you're, you say, oh, I, I want to seek God, what do you ponder? You ponder maybe static experiences or other things, inferior models, or do you ponder Christ? That is how he speaks in these last days. One does not need to seek ecstatic experiences or new age spiritualism or become one with nature, have self-actualization. The way we encounter God is through Christ. And again, merely we just must open up our Bibles and see what he's like. And then and then only will we have proper picture of who God is. And friends, he also, again, as I said, Purif makes purification for sins. He loves us. What an awesome revelation that God has given us. So we've seen now that he is this better revelation. And, this is, and sort of tied into this is our, our minds, our sinful minds tend to go, well, you know, we try to rationalize our way out of it. Well, maybe he's just kind of some really cool spiritual being, like an angel. The author of Hebrews is not <laughs> going to let some, such a thought like that slide. Uh, Christ is better than angels. He explicates this very clearly. Uh, the Jewish audience, they did have a fascination with, with angels and angelic beings. Uh, they thought of them quite highly. They, too, were at times messengers of God, you know, kind of delivering a word. Uh, Acts 7.53 and Galatians 3.19 indicate belief that the law actually went into effect through angels. And angels, you know, they're, they're mysterious. Uh, they're not primarily physical beings, and so they have a spiritual, like, air about them. And so you can see how one's thought might go to something like this. Um, as if, you know, the vast description of Jesus wasn't enough, he's now going to contrast Christ to these inferior beings to really put this idea to bed that Jesus was some kind of created lesser angel. And, you know, there are some cults where this, this is relevant. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses who want to say Jesus was sort of, you know, a created angelic being. But, but, you know, the remainder of chapter one, really into chapter two, he's arguing against this idea. He's putting it to bed. And uh, he's going to list a bunch of reasons why. Some is going to overlap with what we just talked about uh, with, you know, creation and things like that. But, but that's okay. Uh, it's, it's, he's making now this point that Jesus is 
God, really, same point, but now he's just contrasting it with angels. And here's the first thing that he says. Uh, He says that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Here the author of Hebrews is quoting two passages. The first is Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and the second is 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. And what is interesting is that both of these passages, what they have in common is an explicit reference to the Davidic Messiah. And again, especially for this Jewish audience, this idea of Messiah was a weighty idea. And here, it is explicitly referenced to show the uniqueness of Christ to angels. Psalm 2-7, I will announce the decree to the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have fathered you. Second Samuel, I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. Typological description of Jesus Christ. The promises, these, these promises for the Messiah were not concerning angels ruling. No angel was ever appointed to the Davidic line to rule as, as a Messiah. No angel has ever been tied to this kind of promise. No angel could have this functional and real title, Son of God. He is the name above all names. He is the only True Davidic Messiah, the Son of God, the name above all names, far greater than the name an angel could possibly be given. He goes on to even say that the angels actually worship him. And And when he, again, brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. Few, few comments. Some are taken back by this word firstborn, declaring, oh, see, it means that Jesus was somehow some kind of created being. This is incorrect. Firstborn must be a callback to Christ as the inheritor of all things, like we talked about. That was huge in culture. Firstborn inherited everything. And so it's calling calling back our attention to that from verses 2 and 4. Uh, again, these cultures, inheritance of the firstborn was, was a big deal. It was a patriarchal extension, intimately and necessarily joined to their father. And, and that is what this is referencing, that inheritance. And why must we accept this interpretation as correct? Now, in context, understood as a Jew would understand these descriptions. These descriptions are com- com- uh, in the command to worship by the way, could only be applied to one being and one being only. That is God. Such an interpretation like, oh, the firstborn means, means created, has ripped this context out, ignored the surrounding passages that explicitly say that Christ is uncreated, ignore all the Old Testament biblical passages quoted, and ignore the important perspective of the original Jewish audience. In Jewish monotheistic culture, worship was reserved for one being and one being only, the Lord. The heavenly hosts bow down before him. In scripture, there is never worship of a created spiritual or angelic being that is ever endorsed. In fact, John, in his marvelous vision of the heavens in Revelation chapter 19, verse 10, and chapter 22, verse 9, is told by the angels, do not worship me. 
I am a fellow servant. Instead, they say what? Worship God. There is only one worthy of worship. It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Angels don't get worshipped. Created things don't get worshipped. Angels are inferior. Created beings, physical or spiritual, are not receiving this kind of honor. And you see what this implies? This implies that the angels and their worship of the Son is not indicative of some odd angelic hierarchy where Jesus is some head of the created spiritual entities, but rather it is indicative that he is the Son of God, God himself, because that is the only person who worship is reserved for. No lesser being is worthy of it. Therefore, one appropriately interpreting this text must conclude that this is a supreme being, God himself. And moreover, again, closely related to worship, we see the angels serving the Lord. That's what it says. It says that the, uh, regarding the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. Taken from Psalm 104, verse 4. The psalm opens up, by the way, that psalm says, Bless the Lord my soul, Lord my God, you are very great. And then goes on to describe uh, why, leading into verse 4. And an implication of this psalm being used in Hebrews is that the author, again, is showing that Jesus is God because he is being served. He is, he is greater than the angels. The angels are serving him. Again, remember what we just quoted in Revelation. It says, I am a fellow servant. I am a fellow servant, says the angels. The author of Hebrews goes on and he contrasts now the service of the angels to the rule of the Son. But of the Son, he says, your throne, God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of his righteousness is the scepter of his kingdom. Again, quoting Old Testament Psalms, this time Psalm 45, and he is prefacing it by saying this is descriptive of the Son's rule. The writer is saying the sun holds the scepter. The sun is king. Contrast this with the, the servants, the angelic servants. They don't rule. They don't rule over anything. And, and he goes on. He says, uh, you have loved righteousness, speaking of Messiah, that is the son. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. Remember we said early on that Christ came to fulfill the law? Christ is exalted to this high position because he is morally perfect. Now, some get a little confused here. You know, it, it uh, seems as if the author was just arguing that the son was always king. He all, already was king, always. And now we see God kind of like anointing him and raising him up. What's, what's this about? There is a definitive sense in which Christ was always king, then there is also a definitive sense where in space-time, through his moral perfections, vindicates his kingship on display for all to see. Now, you see, his kingship, it's not arbitrary. His moral perfections are tangible in space-time. They were proved, proven on earth as Jesus walked about, morally perfect, faced death and was faithful and please the Father in every single way. We know he was morally tried and tested on this earth, and every time 
every time he succeeded, vindicating his status as the king that he already was. The Davidic king, something no angel can obtain. He goes on talking about the creation of the heavens and the earth. Quoting from Psalm 102, You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. And I won't spend too much time talking about this for sake of uh, redundancy because this is really something we discussed also in verse 2. However, the author is now concerned with angels in this portion. And so it's important that we note something explicit that was uh, mentioned here. The Lord's creation of the heavens. This word could apply to the sky, those beautiful pictures we saw, but it also could apply to spiritual beings. And seeing as he's talking about angels, I think there's a good case to be made that that application holds. For whatever reason in our culture, and I think our minds, just because it's tough, right? For whatever reason, spiritual things, perhaps due to their non-physical nature, have a tendency to be inappropriately synonymous with uncreated things. Spiritual things like angels were created. God created the heavens and the earth and all things, Colossians says, visible and invisible. He created it all. The act of creation of the heavens and the earth, by the way, it's nowhere ever attributed to angels in Scripture. Try to find a single passage in your Bible that says, then the angels created. You will not find one in your Bible. But the Son, he himself is not created and is attributed as the creator of all things, the heavens and the earth, distinct from angels. We also see he's eternal and he's changeless. Speaking of the heavens and the earth, uh, the psalm quoted states, they will perish, but you remain, and they will all wear out like a garment, and like a robe you will roll them up like a garment, they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. Here we have another contrast. The temporary nature and dependency of created things against the eternal and changeless nature of God. No beginning, no end. You know, 300 trillion years from now, Jesus, the Son, will still be the same. And he will still be the relevant king and the savior of, of his people. Forever. Forever. He will be of the utmost relevance. There will be no end. The grandeur of God in Christ Jesus is forever relevant. Not just for here in our, our life we die and then we go to heaven and then there's like some kind of new revelation of God. No, it's Christ forever. Deeper and deeper levels of who he is. The Son has this, this nature, this eternal nature to him. He will never change. And the author of Hebrews will eventually go on to say in Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. Only one being is like that. God, not, not angels. And, and this one is, is, this one had me. This one's really good. Christ is better because he is seated at the right hand. And we briefly mentioned this, but, but we'll read it and we'll go over it. It says, now, uh, it says, sit at my right hand, this is the psalm, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So not only is Christ sitting at the right hand representative of his finished work of purification, like we said in verse 3, moreover, the place he is sitting is extraordinarily significant. 
He is seated at the right hand of God. Seated at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, where this is taken from, is a messianic psalm that is quoted here. Remember, uh, think about this to get the, the Jewish understanding of what that might mean. Remember when Jesus was before the Sanhedrin in Luke 22? Here's what it says in chapter 22 of, of Luke, verse 67 through 71. It says, The Sanhedrin asks, If you're the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, You are the Son of God then. And, and he said to them, You say correctly that I am. And then from here, they take him before Pilate, and then they crucify him for alleged blasphemy. Why? Because that is what it means to sit at the right hand of God. Or remember Stephen in Acts 7. He said he saw Jesus at the right hand of God. He was looking up. He said, I see Jesus at the right hand of God. And then the Jewish leaders shouted, and they covered their ears, and they stoned Stephen on the spot. You see, the Jewish interpretation of being seated at the right hand of God meant you share in his holiness and his power. In the Jewish mind, and Hebrews is a Jewish audience, very important to remember that, the claim of being at the right hand of God demands nothing short of being God himself, sharing in his holiness. The angels don't share in these things with God. Not in this sort of way. Angels, when they're interacting with the throne, what are they doing? They're, they're before the throne of God. They're covering their faces. And they're saying, holy, holy, holy. They are not sitting down at the right hand of God. There is only one who could do that, the Son. This claim to be at the right hand of God was very significant. It was a claim to be God himself. It was blasphemous, as we saw, based off of the reactions of some of these Jews earlier that we looked at. And, and lastly, sort of like as a, a wrapping up point here, he stops, stops quoting and he says, oh, by the way, the angels, you know, they actually serve those who inherit salvation. He closes with this, this subservient note on angels are they, angels, that is, not all ministering spirits sent out to provide service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Now, again, angels were held in extremely high regard by the Jews. There was sort of an infatuation with them. Uh, however, as we mentioned earlier, the goal, the nature of angels, why they were created, were to actually serve. And here the writer qualifies, not some, look at what he says. He says, all the angels, all the spirits are for service. That is the function of angels, completely, every single one. These fancy hierarchy structures we sometimes uh, espouse, every angel is a servant. In fact, the only time an angel demanded worship and, and you know, sort of uh, had an intention of not serving, he was thrown into Sheol and ends up serving now on a leash. The seraphim, the cherubim, though enigmatic and theatrically described, are servants. All of them are servants. And the idea here is that, again, angels are mere servants by nature. 
but Jesus is king. And friends, the nuance here in verse 14 for us is if we are a part of his body, part of the body of Christ, the, the one who holds the scepter and rules, the angels even minister to us. Now, of course, they serve Jesus, but we too are heirs of salvation. So they serve us as well. We have inherited salvation. This, this way of thinking shows both God's value he has for his people and his purpose for angelic beings as servants. And such a description should cause us to worship not angels, because angels, I mean, they're, they're, they're serving us. I mean, cause us to worship the Lord, the Lord. Here's the point. And again, it's the simple point we started with. Every one of these descriptions in Hebrews 1 is concerning the son's status. There is a second person to the Trinity. It is, it is there. And moreover, every one of these descriptions is one that any, any Jewish person would only ascribe to God himself. Hebrews makes it clear, Jesus Christ is the Son. This is a robust offense. Jesus, the Son, is in fact God. Do you believe that this morning? For the saint who has experienced this revelation of Christ, of the Son, let it reign ever more true in your heart and enable you to hold fast, to endure all things, because we're enduring it. For, for something so great. Jesus is the Son. He is God. While you're under persecution, while stones are being thrown, you can resonate with Stephen and you can look up to the heavens and you can say, I see Jesus at the right hand. Hold fast, friends. The master, the king of the universe, is what that, that person, that, that's Jesus. That's what we believe as Christians. And for those of you who have not yet come to this conclusion, would you consider it? Would you recognize that Jesus has to be God? Jesus has to be God. When you accept, accept that and, and who the Son is and what he's done for you, that he came in the flesh and purif made purification for your sins and died for you and rose again to prove who he was. Oh, you too can become an inheritor of that salvation. Have a few angels serve you. Sounds good to me. That's, but, but moreover, that relationship with God, it's available to you. That eternal significance of being a part of the body of Christ, the eternal salvation, eternal significance of being united with, the, with, with God through the Son. Forsake old ways, friends. Forsake sin or an inferior religions. Not the true revelation of, of, of God. Worse revelation. The revelation we have of God in Christ is better. Cling to that. Cling to the supreme representation of God in Christ Jesus, I pray. He's the best picture of God, better than any old revelation, better than angelic entities, and he is better because he himself, the Son, is God. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this word, um, and Lord, we thank you that 
this book we're going through is so centered on, on these exaltations of Christ, Lord. And we just pray that, Lord, you would make yourself known for who you are, the, the God of the universe, and that, um, Lord, you would work in the hearts of those who don't know you, and they would recognize that, Lord, you are the supreme being above all else. God, we just love you. We pray we would hold on to this truth, hold fast to understanding um, the ramifications of what all of this means. We love you, Lord, and we praise you. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.